It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today's guest, I met through Clubhouse. Wait, actually, now I'm second guessing that, Michelle. Did we meet on Clubhouse or did we meet elsewhere and then do a Clubhouse together? No, we met through your podcast. That's right. I'm getting it all confused now. (laughs) I have started to associate with Clubhouse, but you and I met through your amazing podcast that I was a guest on called Successful Diligence. And we had a conversation when we first met through your pre-record interview. And you used this phrase called unapologetically unpolished. And it was an aha moment for me. I, I suggested that we do a clubhouse room together. And it was really resonating with people that were in the room. We did it a few times. You started your own club based on that idea. And it turned out that a lot of people were drawn to this concept of being unapologetically unpolished. And I think it's because many of us feel like we have to apologize when we don't feel that we're polished. Or sometimes we might feel like that pressure to be polished all the time. So we really don't have a choice and even an opportunity to not be unpolished because we're trying too hard to kind of hold ourselves together very frequently. And this really comes up a lot for a lot of people on our listeners. This is a topic that we we discuss a lot on this show. And I'm really curious to hear more about your view on this, Michelle, because it, it's something that really came naturally to you during discussion. But since since you started this club on Clubhouse around it, I'm sure that you're reflecting on this a lot more and hearing from a lot of people. So I would love to hear an update on your findings around what it means to be unapologetically unpolished. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the show, by the way. I'm so excited to be here. When we had our pre-chat for my podcast, it usually typically lasts about 15 to 20 minutes and ours went an hour and a half, I think. (laughs) So there was a definite connection. And when I mentioned being unapologetically unpolished, that is something that I've been using more and more frequently as I have embraced self-acceptance and self-compassion and embracing myself, flaws and all, perfectly imperfect. And it's, I'm 47 years old this summer. I look like I'm 20 and I embrace that as well. (laughs) But I've learned that the older I get, the more unapologetic I become about who I am, how I show up in the world and achieving the purpose and impact that I was born to achieve and to give as a gift to the world. And so it's been received really, really well from people on Clubhouse. As I begin to infuse the messaging into different projects, it's been received and resonating really, really well with my audience. And it's just something that I think people have been waiting to see someone else demonstrate to give themselves permission to also show up in the world unapologetically. 
You mentioned self-compassion, Michelle, and I think that this is something that I'm actually spending a lot of time working on right now because I, I've realized that probably like a lot of people, we have been taught to give love and give compassion to others, but to give that to ourselves. You know, we hear we hear terms floating around like self-love, self-compassion. I find it's much more difficult for me to give myself love and compassion versus extending that outward to others. And I'm curious in your process of of cultivating compassion and acceptance for yourself, was that difficult for you? You know, did, did you feel like it was something you had to learn because you weren't taught it as a child or a young person? And if so, what was that process of cultivating like that for you, for, especially for someone like me and probably a lot of our listeners where it's difficult and we're not used to it and we weren't taught it as children? What's that like and how, how do you suggest we start to cultivate more love and compassion for ourselves? Yeah, Jason, that's a great question. And I was not taught self-compassion. I was actually infused with not self-hatred, but definitely the opposite of self-acceptance. I was born in 1974 when it was not cool and not very popular to be a biracial individual. So my mother is Jewish. My father's African-American. Although I just say black because we have no African... (laughs) We have no African relatives that I know of. So he he was black from D.C. And my parents met and they got married the night before I made my arrival in the earth (laughs) on July 19th. I was born July 20th. And growing up, it was really challenging. I was exclusively in the Jewish community, which is not conducive to interracial, biracial individuals at that time. It was not something that was common or even, it was very atypical, I'll say. And so for me, every negative slur, bullying, being different, I internalized as something's wrong with me. And my father left my life when I was three. And so that was a rejection of your parent, right? And so I internalized that as well. And so I had a really rough time growing up and made some really poor choices in my adolescence that I had to deal with the consequences of. And so I had a very strong dislike of myself because I saw that there was a truth inside of me of who I was, but I was not living that out in the earth. I wasn't demonstrating that. I wasn't showing up in truth. And I was angry at myself for that. And so I would beat myself up and I developed my strong inner self-critic and I was excelling in those negative, maladaptive ways of being. And it wasn't until I really found purpose And I really started to understand the power of paying attention that I began to say, and I'm a person of faith. And so I began to say, if God made all things and he, everything he said that he made was good, who am I to argue that me, who he also made is not good. And that conviction said, okay, I'm not perfect. I'm flawed but I have to accept who I am and learn who that is. And as I began to learn myself and develop gratitude and disconnect from other people's opinions, other people's viewpoints, and really dig into the truth of me, that was when I started to, number one, tell the truth, number two, accept, 
And then I could begin the journey to self-love and self-compassion. So it's been a journey. I'm still on the journey. And it's not easy. It's a dark and dirty one that you have to just keep walking and have that perseverance and that tenacity and that commitment to keep going even when it doesn't feel good. It's really beautiful, Michelle. And we're, we're so grateful that you speak up with so much confidence because it's so inspiring. And it makes me wonder why so many people struggle with this. Why is this such a, for lack of a better term, universal experience, regardless of how somebody is raised and what their background is, who they are, what they look like, where they come from, all these factors, it seems like most people, I've actually never come across a person that that does not struggle with this. <laughs> is it a rite of passage that we face or are we just not set up to educate people on how to move through this faster? You know, like some people struggle with this their entire lives. Some people I don't even think realize how much of a struggle it is and it comes out in other ways that self-hatred leads them to act or behave or think in, in all of these different ways because maybe they don't even know that it's an option to love themselves. And I think just speaking out about this over and over again is so important, but giving people some of the the tools. So what would you say that you found, Michelle, for yourself and also for all of the amazing guests that you have on your podcast? I'm sure that this comes up quite often. What do you think are some of the ways in which people can find that within themselves if they're really struggling with it? And they haven't really found a way to love themselves yet. I think it comes down to that people don't always have the language for what they feel. And you're right. It's a universal issue. Men, women, children, adults. My mother, who is 71, is still struggling. My grandfather, who is going to be 101 this summer, still struggles with it. And I think it has to do with a couple different variables. You know, I, I have a 20 year history of being a clinical social worker in the field of child welfare with the most neglected and abused population, poverty stricken, sexual abuse, death, you know, really the dark side of humanity. And, you know, I, I, so I think you're right. It's a universal issue, right? And I think that sometimes there's not language for the emotions that we feel and the feelings. And we also, as a society, are so busy that we don't allow ourselves to process, slow down. And then we also don't always accept the truth. I always go back to telling the truth because a lot of people will say this and that and this and that, but they're not being honest with themselves. They're not being honest with others. And confidence comes from acceptance. You know, I was in a room in Clubhouse about speaking and confidence in speaking, and, and a profound statement came through where this gentleman said, if you are in the room, if you're at the table, you are already accepted, you are already qualified, and therefore you can have peace and security that you are already there, you don't have to prove yourself. And I think that applies to more than just speaking. I think it applies to just the fact that you made it out of your mother's womb and you were born, you are qualified, valuable, and worthy, period. And a lot of people don't accept that. And society also gives messages that 
confront that truth, right? And so we forget the truth that we've learned as children before we had language. And then we have to unlearn, to relearn, to then finally live out the purpose and value that we have inside of us. And so I think that telling the truth is phenomenal for freedom of self. And that allows you to then accept, work through process, do all the things. And that's really the first step of what I work with my clients on. It's the first step of, of my you know personal methodology is that you got to tell the truth. That's foundational. And once you tell the truth, then you can move to acceptance. Then you can move to all the other steps towards self-compassion, self-love. But you got to tell the truth. And telling the truth is scary. It's not easy. It's messy. But we are equipped and able to handle the truth. So I think that's the first step. My curiosity is how do we get closer to being clear about what our truth is? Because I feel sometimes that from my experience and also talking to so many friends over the years is that we sometimes convince ourselves that we want certain things or that we have specific dreams or aims or, or, or things we want to create or be of service to. But I've found that a lot of those things over the years have been programs or things that other told me, uh, other people told me I ought to dream about. Like, th this should be your career path. This should be your dream. Go for that, Jason, because you're good at that. But as I got into a lot of things in my life and I started to really experience them, I realized that what I thought was my truth was actually someone else's truth that I had adopted as my own because I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be acknowledged. I wanted to be significant. It was almost like an aspect of people-pleasing or survival mechanisms of believing that what other people wanted for me was what I wanted for myself. And I found over the years that those are often two very different things. And so you talked, Michelle, about the messiness of truth. You know, how do we get closer to what that is for ourselves? Because I think it's very easy to confuse, like I said, what other people want or their truth, and we co-opt it as our own, oftentimes only to later realize it wasn't our truth in the first place. It was someone else's that we just adopted. So how do, how do we clear all that away and just get to the heart, get to the core of our authentic, truthful self? Oh, Jason, I love what you just said. It resonated so strongly because I am a recovering people pleaser. I was trained from birth, I want to say, to be a people pleaser. And I got so entangled with other people's expectations, with other people's ideas about who I am and who I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do. I mean, literally, that was me. And I, the image that comes to my mind is of an intertwined vine that I had to untangle to find the truth of who I am. And the only way that I was able to do that, I'll be very honest, it was, it was difficult because I had to disconnect from my mother, who was a foundational relationship. I didn't talk to her for three years. I had to disconnect from other friends and family members. I had to go into a season of life that it was just me, my journal, and my mind, which was a very interesting, fascinatingly dark place <laughs> during that season. And I had to sit with myself and I had a lot of tears and I had a lot of lonely, lonely nights, which is not easy when you are a people person. And I had to untangle 
others from myself. And again, that truth telling of this thought is not mine. This idea is not mine. And I dismissed it. And then I had to replace it with something else. And so when, and some of the things were good, like I'm good at singing. And my mother had me in, you know, musical theater and had a dream of me going to Broadway because I lived in New York City when I was growing up. And I was on board for a while. And then I was like, I hate this. And I was getting lead roles. I would audition for the Fiddler on the Roof with a ghetto intonation, like street slang, urban talk intonation, because I didn't want the part. And they still gave me the lead part. And I was like, this is not working. (laughs) And so I had to admit, I don't want this dream. This is not my dream. It was my mother's dream to go on Broadway and to sing. And she, you know, cut a record when she was younger, and I could sing also, but that wasn't for me. And I had to tell the truth that I don't want this. And then it was scary because it was like, what do I want? I, I am good at this. I am good at that. But what do I really want? And I think for a lot of people, it's scary to admit what you really want because then you go into, well, can I get it? How do I do that? There's so many other people doing the same thing. And what if I'm not good enough? And all of those sorts of thoughts and sitting with that and not dismissing it, acknowledging it, telling the truth, but then also acknowledging the courage I've made it this far. I've been walking my whole life and I've made it through some really dark times. I can make it through this too. And putting in practical strategies for myself, like a gratitude practice. You know, I was suicidal at one time in my life. And so when I started my gratitude practice, my one thing that I could say I was grateful for, I'm grateful that I'm on this side of the dirt. That was my gratitude practice for months until I could add another thing. And then I added another thing. And then I added another thing. And so it was building, but I built small because that was how I could sort of digest it and allow myself to grow. So starting small with the truth and replacing the things that are not mine that didn't belong to me with things that do belong to me and sitting with the uncomfortableness, being not necessarily comfortable being uncomfortable, but acknowledging I've got to feel uncomfortable to make progress. It's just part of the process. And so that was really how I started my journey with that. My curiosity is, how did your mom react or respond, Michelle, when you made it clear to her that you weren't going to pursue the dream that she had for you? What was that like? And first of all, congratulations on manifesting, you know, the courage of getting clear about your truth to know that that wasn't your dream. That was a dream that was kind of installed in you by someone else. But when you had that conversation or series of conversations with your mother, how did she take it? How did she treat you? What did that do to the dynamic between her and you? You and her? Her and you? I don't know. What did that do to the the dynamic between the two of you? You know, it's funny, Jason. My mother and I have always had a combative relationship. My personality is a lot stronger than hers outwardly. I think because of my father, he was definitely an extrovert and a life of the party. My mother is more of an academic and I think repressed a lot of who she is. And it wasn't verbal. So when I was going through this process, I was, you know, acting out. I wasn't returning phone calls. I was choosing things that I wanted to do. I was just doing my thing and not consulting her and her feelings were hurt and she was sad and she would also lash out verbally in some negative ways that pissed me off. And so I would just 
run away and, <laughs> you know, stay at my boyfriend's house for a week. And it was very, very detrimental and negative because I didn't have the language. I was young. My mother didn't have the emotional skills that maybe she would have helped her handle me and work through that because she had her own issues she was dealing with. And I was rageful that she was trying to parentify me, which means that she was trying to get me to mother her when I needed her to mother me. So there was a lot of dynamics going on that we probably could have unpacked in therapy if we had gone, but we didn't. And so it was really hard for a lot of years. And she was not happy, didn't understand, was very hurt. And then we didn't talk for a couple of years. And when I reestablished contact, I was very clear about my boundaries and my expectations and what I would and would not tolerate. And it took years for her to accept my new boundaries and consistency for me, for her to really understand it. And me sitting with feeling horrible that I was hurting my mother because I knew I was hurting her feelings. I knew she didn't get it. But for my sanity and the priority of my emotional health, I had to stick with my boundaries. I had to stick with the consistency of it and trust the process that eventually we would make it to the other side, which we did because we do have a, a much more loving relationship today because I was able to stick with that process. But it was a really rocky, dirty, hard, messy road. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, Michelle. I mean, I think a lot of people can relate to that, but it's not something that we hear verbalized very often. I, I think there's sometimes shame in talking about what our family history is like, what our relationships with our parents are. I feel kind of like it's it's often a on one end of a spectrum. Either you have a really phenomenal relationship with your parents or you had an awful relationship with them and you don't talk and, and you don't feel good about them. But a lot of people fall somewhere else on that spectrum or maybe they want to bring the spectrum to the other side, which it kind of sounds like you have done where you were not in that great place, but you were committed to working through it. And that's really inspirational as well, because I think a lot of people are either afraid to do that, they don't have the tools to do that, or it's just like a lot of relationships where your ego gets in the way. It's like, well, why should I do this? Why should I put in the work? I didn't do anything wrong. It's all this person's fault and this blame state. I see this, of course, in marriages, right? Like, one of my friends is going through a tough time with her husband right now and just like seeing the rage that she's in with the situation. She wants to work through it, but sometimes the the rage and the resentment and the frustration, all of those things really get in the way. So you don't fully see the other person and you might be consciously trying to work through it, but our egos can often block us from that. And I think that comes down to a lot of fear. It's so scary to admit our responsibility. It's so scary to tell somebody how they've hurt us. And then it's also scary to be in that vulnerable place where we don't know how the other person's going to react because we don't have control over whether or not they're going to do the work too. So there's a lot of bravery in your story, Michelle, and it's really inspiring. Thank you for that. I, you know, I never thought of it, uh, of it as being brave. You mentioned a couple things that I really want to unpack because for years I lived in rage. And so I can definitely 
relate to that. I also lived in shame and shame is debilitating. I know you've done a recent episode on the podcast about shame, so I won't dig into it. But, you know, I think that the biggest thing that helped me move forward through shame, through rage was forgiveness. And it wasn't forgiveness of my mother at first. It was really recognizing I was in a pit I was in a life that I did not enjoy. I didn't recognize myself. When I looked in the mirror, I wasn't happy. I knew I wanted something different. And I had to be honest with myself about my own flaws and accept them, but also forgive myself for how horrible I treated myself and for what I allowed in my life and begin to pick up the pieces of that first and then recognize that, you know what, we're, we're all human no one is perfect. And my mother did the best she could with what she had. And I had to accept that. And I had to get my nurturing elsewhere. I had to get, you know, the mothering that she didn't have to give me from other people like my grandmother and her, even my mother's friends, you know, were mothering to me in different ways. And so I had to find what I needed elsewhere and forgive my mother for not being who I thought I thought that she needed to be, but she ended up being exactly the mother that I did need so that I could become the person that I am today. And so I'm really grateful for her. She's still alive. So I I love that we can still make memories. She still is very disrespectful when she comes to visit with my husband and I, and he has a big, a big issue with her. And we, we deal with that because she is who she is and we have to adapt at the same time, establishing those boundaries And, you know, you mentioned marriage as well. My husband and I will be 15 years married this April and 2021 is when we're recording. And I would say for a good five years, we talk divorce every other day. (laughs) We had a very dark period in our marriage until we had a conversation where we told the truth. Going back to the day we got married, when I was offended by something he did and never talked about it. But that seed had grown into bitterness and we had to deal with it. And I had done some things that he had carried on from our early days of marriage. And so until we dealt with the truth, we couldn't get through the shame and the rage and forgiveness. Forgiveness is is what really replaces the rage and the shame and forgiving ourselves first because you can't give what you don't have. So you have to forgive yourself first and then you can extend that forgiveness to others And that's where the peace and the joy and the freedom and the confidence and the empowerment to live your life as you have wanting to be living it comes in. You know, that's when you can really get excited to wake up in the morning and say, yes, I get to live another day of my life. And that's where the joy comes in. It really is through that door of forgiveness. Wow. I love that you are talking about this, Michelle. And Jason, I want to pass this over to you and you're often very willing to get raw with your experiences. And we haven't really talked about rage that much on our show. But I know that for you, and perhaps the word rage does not suit you, so I'll let you speak for yourself on this. But I do know that you struggle with anger. You feel a lot of it. And I'm curious, A, do you resonate with the word rage? And how do you handle that right now if you do? And if, if you are not handling it well, I think simply talking openly about it is welcome here. And how what Michelle is, is speaking on today is resonating with you. It does absolutely resonate. And it, it resonates because about a month and a half ago with my therapist, we identified that I, 
a lot of the things that I'm struggling with psychologically and mentally, not everything, but, but a significant portion of it is repressed rage from my childhood, from things that had happened when I was younger that made me feel extremely unsafe and extremely not protected and taken care of. And I have transmuted that rage into adulthood because I've never, first of all, it's an awareness thing. I think for me, it's been a process of identifying why am I so angry? Because, you know, with my therapist, it was like, it's not really about the situation that's in front of me. It's triggering something from a repression that I didn't express this rage when I was younger in a healthy way that was allowed to resolve it within myself. So much like the example you gave, Michelle, of, of you know, these things from your marriage where you might have felt triggered or hurt and we, we stuff it down, right? And as a child, I stuffed down a lot of rage and I didn't even realize it. So now as an adult, I will have sometimes explosive emotional outbursts, not in the sense of, how do I say this, being disrespectful to another person or talking down to them. It's just sometimes seemingly seemingly minute or meaningless incidents, my reaction to those things is way over the top. And I've had to sit and look and like, why am I so angry about this seemingly insignificant? Why am I so deeply triggered? It's because of years and years and years of just bottling and repressing as a child. Now as an adult, it's like a volcano and I'm doing my best to understand it and clean it up and work with it. But I do see progress, and I want to give myself a little bit of a self-love right now. I had a really painful incident happen with my neighbors a couple of weeks ago, and, and I don't, I'm not ready to talk about the specifics of it yet, but they've come to me and they've said, you know, we want to, we want to talk about it, we want to you know, create res resolution with this thing that happened. And I said to them, I said, I'm not ready yet. And the reason I'm not ready yet is because I need to get to a place inside of my heart where I can speak to them with a level of compassion and respect and clarity because I don't want to come at them with rage. I don't want to come at them with anger. And some people don't understand this sometimes. I've had to say in, in different relationships, not just with the current situation with neighbors, but say more intimate relationships, like, hey, I want to talk about this. We need to date. And I'm like, I need time to process and get to a place where I can speak with clarity and compassion and respect toward you. Because I feel sometimes when people try and rush me to resolve a situation, if I'm in an emotional state where I'm feeling that rage, sometimes that will come out in a way that I know is not respectful and compassionate and loving. So for me, I emotionally process things sometimes where I not only need to calm down, but I need to make sure that I am anchored in a place of love and clarity and understanding with a person because I don't want to scream at someone and I don't want to put that negative emotion out into the world. So the long answer is I do deal with rage and I feel like I'm managing it and understanding it and working to heal it in, in new ways that I've never done in the past. But it was a little bit shocking, you know, to work with my therapist and he's like, you have a ton of repressed rage from your childhood. And I'd never had that said to me before. And when he said it, I was like, you know what? You're absolutely right. And to your point, Michelle, you know, it, it's been a dark, painful, at times excruciating exploration of myself. But in a way, I don't feel like I can turn back from it. There's almost this sense of, you know, one thing when I've been in it is, is the phrase, and I'm probably paraphrasing it horribly, but like, 
you know, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. So if I'm being put in the dark night of the soul and I am dealing with rage and anger and sadness and self-hatred, which I am, there's a reason I'm dealing with it. And I can't turn a blind eye to it. I can't ignore it. I can't act like it doesn't exist because it does exist. And it wants to be healed and it wants to be accepted and it wants to be looked at. So it's been really hard and really painful and really challenging. And on some level, I'm waking up every day saying yes to it. So that's a really long answer to that question. (laughs) I have to jump in here. I have to, because number one, I want to say kudos to you for the courage to even embark on the journey. There's so many of us who are in the process of what you described that don't even acknowledge that they're in the process and don't have the courage to actually sit with it and say yes. And so I just want to acknowledge the courage that you have to say yes to it and to sit with it. And I think that a lot of times, because I was in rage for years, you know, I, I witnessed a suicide at age 17 in our English class. And, you know, I mentioned it earlier. And I was rageful at the response of all of us for not paying attention to this boy But so often we don't pay attention to ourselves. So why would we pay attention to someone else, right? And we don't tell the truth. And so what I learned through my 20 years of processing the rage of that was just like you, I had repressed rage from other things, my father leaving, you know, certain things before I even had language that I was rageful about, people shoving food in my mouth when I was a toddler. You know, it comes up for a reason and a purpose, not just so that we can get to the peace that we are, you know, I think we forget that we have access to peace and we have to get through the mess in the forest to get there, but it is accessible. And, you know, you mentioned God never gives us more than we can handle. He actually does give us more than we can handle. But what he does is he equips us in the process of being overwhelmed and overburdened so that we're not walking the journey alone. We walk life alone, but with each other. And so we're never really alone. And the equipment, the support is that when you are ready, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. When you are ready for it, and when you are enabled with enough courage to accept the truth, to go through the process, everything you need will be given to you exactly when you need it. And so, you know, you have this therapist that will sit with you in that space. You've got beautiful friends in your life that will help you. You've got a podcast that helps you process externally and verbally. You've got other strategies and, and tools and tips that you can use. And it's a beautiful process when we just take a deep breath, accept express gratitude that we're even on the journey. And we wake up and say, you know what, if I'm waking up and breathing, I have another chance to do this. I can. And our superpower of choice says that every day we can choose. I can. Yeah, that resonates deeply, Michelle. And it's interesting you bring up this idea of overwhelm and that what we need appears when we need it. Because there's been so many, it's really interesting. This is going to be a slight tangent, but I feel like there's a strange amnesia sometimes that I experience, and I've talked to others about this, where we find ourselves in a really challenging, painful, confusing, difficult moment in life. And sometimes it's almost as if we've forgotten everything we've survived prior to that. The moments before that moment that felt as equally daunting, equally painful, or even more so, that we survived and thrived and found ourselves touched by some level of grace. 
truly in some moments. I mean, there, there's been moments in my life that I look back and I go, I don't know how I survived that. And the only word is grace in some of those moments, very dire moments, like truly like in the moment going, I don't know either, you know, physically survive it or emotionally survive it. You know, there's levels to that, of course, but I think it's interesting when we find ourselves in these moments in the present moment, that it's so easy to forget what we've survived and we've how resilient we are. But to your point, that in those moments, there's support and unseen forces that somehow come in, in moments to like save the day. It's almost cinematic in a way. It's almost like it's, it's kind of imprinted in our consciousness, isn't it? I mean, if you look at movies and you look at storytelling and you look at the hero's journey and you look at religion and you look at parables and there seems to be this theme of, you know, at the darkest moment when all hope seems lost, when, when the heroes have been defeated and, and evil is going to win, that something will happen. It's almost like something that's, it's in our cosmology. It's like in our consciousness in a way to, I don't know, I lose faith sometimes and then I'll have my faith restored and I'll lose faith and I'll have my faith restored and I'll lose faith. And th- this seems to be like something I go through a lot where it's like, oh, I am loved and protected and taken care of. And like, <gasps> I forget that I am. Oh my God. Oh my God. And like, oh, I am loved and taking. Oh, okay. And I forget. And it's almost like this process of remembering and trust and faith and then the amnesia and then remembering and amnesia. Do I sound crazy? <laughs> I think that's the journey of life is the forgetting, the knowing, the forgetting, the knowing. And that comes from birth. We know everything when we're born and then we forget everything. We learn, we unlearn, we relearn. And it's all to go back to the same place, right? And part of that that we haven't talked about is grief. And the grief that comes along with the letting go of the rage because it's comfortable, and it's, it's a place that we've known and we've befriended it. It's hard to let go of a friend of rage and anger, even maladaptive thoughts and life behaviors because they're comfortable. We know them. And again, you have to be uncomfortable to grow. But there's grief in that. There is a process of loss and sadness that we also have to tell the truth about. I used to be a very mean, hateful person. I'm very good with words and I used it as a weapon against people in my college years. I mean, I would make men cry in the club (laughs) and I had to acknowledge I was a horrible person. Forget the reasons why. I was horrible. And I had to let go of that aspect of who I was as I began to heal. But there was a loss because I felt strengthened by that. I was, I felt empowered. I'm strong and, you know, go woman, I can bring you down. And there was an aspect of that I had to tell the truth about. Even though it was ugly, it was still a friend. It was still comfortable. And there was a loss when I had to say goodbye to that. And going through the grief process is part of the journey as well. Wow, the way that you articulate that, Michelle, I don't think any anyone has said it quite that way. And it really resonates with me because I think that is probably going back to when I was talking about the spectrum of our relationships and our challenges and and how we view life. I think that's probably one of the biggest hindrances is and, and, and ultimately one of the inspirations for our podcast is that we as human beings crave a lot of comfort. But I think over time, it goes beyond the actual 
comfort needs that that are required to survive, right? Like, of course, the comfort of of a place to live. So knowing that your life is not going to be threatened because of nature and you're protected from outside forces, you know, and we don't have the dangers that, you know, human beings did in the past of, of animals. And, you know, we're not like fending for our lives quite the same way. We have much more access in general to food and water. But now it's like we have created other issues for our mental health much, you know, like now that our physical health is secured, we have all these mental health issues and we are so drawn to comfort that we get in our own way because these emotions feel safe because we know them. Like you're saying, they're, they're friends to us. They're familiar. And I'm curious, Jason, going back to what you were exploring with your therapist, if that came up and, and almost like the fact that you were surprised at the history of it. We were also talking about kind of this amnesia that we have. Do you feel, Jason, that you forgot the roots? Because I, I feel like that's common as well. Most of us, perhaps as a coping mechanism, as a way, again, to get comfortable, is we have this amnesia of the traumatic events in our lives, unless we really are rooted in them. Like for you, Michelle, acknowledging some of the trauma that you've been through, you're very aware of it. But I feel like as a way of staying comfortable, our brains will create this amnesia and we completely forget where that rage even came from or that grief came from or that people pleasing manifested itself from. So Jason, in your exploration, are you now clear on the roots of it? Or are you still reflecting and trying to get to the bottom of it? Where are you in that process with your rage? There was nothing that surprised me and there hasn't been anything necessarily in terms of of memory or emotional recollection because i i do remember as a child for example my father being physically violent and emotionally violent with my mother and i and situations where you know i had to run out of the house and go to my aunt's house to call the police and the squad car coming and seeing my father taken away in a squad car i mean there's so many examples of this so it's not about repression of memory as much as it is creating the link between in a moment now as a grown adult man, when I have something that triggers me and I'm rageful, if I can identify the reason that I'm responding with rage is because I feel unsafe and that I don't, that I can't necessarily, um, how do I say this? protect myself. There's something in the moment, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm angry and I'm rageful because I feel unsafe and this thing feels out of control. If I look back at the seed of where that acute rage response comes from, it may be that as a very young boy, I didn't feel safe and I didn't feel like I had the power to protect myself and my mother against my father who was violent and addicted and, and rageful himself, right? And so as this like five-year-old boy who wanted to, you know, beat my father's ass and protect my mother and protect me, I could not do it. You talk about the self-hatred, Michelle. It's the rage toward him, but it's also the rage toward myself, which is misplaced. I mean, what what five-year-old boy can physically take down, you know, a, a 40-year-old man? I mean, it's 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 not about logic as much as it is that 
the lack of safety or control or protection in a present moment will go back to the rage I had not processed from that very old thing. And my brain interprets it as the same. You know, here's a present moment situation where I can't, I don't feel protected. I don't feel safe. And it reminds me of what I hadn't dealt with, with the rage I felt toward him and also the rage toward myself. I mean, there's layers to this, right? Because I, I could identify the forgiveness that I've done around my father, but I feel like the deeper forgiveness, to be honest, is with me. That how could you have done anything else as a little boy? It's okay to be angry at your father for what he did, even though he was doing the best with what he had. Truly, I believe that. But it's almost like the deeper rage is, is a self-directed rage. And when those moments, present moments come up, it's almost like, well, why can't you overpower this situation? You should be able to take control. You should be able to feel safe. Why don't you feel safe? You're a grown-ass man. Why, why don't you feel safe right now? So it really is on the deepest level, forgiving myself and processing the rage I've directed toward me. And that is the most challenging stuff I've had to do. It's been way easier to forgive my father and forgive other people, to forgive myself and reconcile the rage that I've directed toward me. That's where I'm at right now. And it is hard and painful and very difficult for me to do. Oh, Jason, you just expressed that beautifully. And I honor you for the journey that you're on. What you're talking about, and Whitney, you mentioned Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? We start with our basic shelter needs, and we ultimately are looking for meaning in our lives, right? But Jason, what you were just mentioning about your process and journey towards forgiveness of self, what you're doing is you are literally biologically retraining your brain because you have had a pattern of biochemistry that has responded when you feel unsafe and when you have those moments of rage directed inward, right? And so you have to be intentional with your responses once you have that self-awareness and you're literally retraining your brain and paying attention to those neurotransmitters and those neural pathways that you're creating and strengthening while you ignore the old patterns, the old neural pathways that then can dry up and, and be deactivated. So it is a process that takes time. And forgiveness of self is not a one-time deal. Sometimes for me, years, it was a daily, hourly thing. I would remember to forgive myself in the morning and forget by the afternoon and have to redo it in the evening, <laughs> you know, and allowing yourself to go through that process. You mentioned grace earlier. Grace is giving yourself permission to not be perfect, giving yourself permission to embark on the journey, allowing yourself to be in whatever state that is, whether you are in a moment of rage and misdirecting it and then being aware of it and saying, wow, that was not useful. Let me find something else to replace it with forgive myself for the maladaptive response, but wow, I was able to find a new response or even just celebrating that you're aware of it. That's the first step too. And I think that as we reinforce the positive steps that we take, it becomes a little bit easier with the next step. So I just applaud you for the courage and the um, immense, immense progress that you've already made. And this also ties back into that idea of being unapologetically unpolished, I think, because when you were touching on people pleasing, 
for example, like a lot of this is trauma that we're reflecting on, Jason, that, that comes down to survival as well. Like, I think as kids, many of us are raised to believe that we have to please our parents to survive. Or somebody else teaches us that, like you have to please your teachers to get a good grade. And if you get a good grade, then you get to go to the school that you want. And if you go to the school that you want, then you get to get the job that you want. And if you get the job that you want, you have to please your your boss so that you'll stay employed. And it's like all of this pleasing, pleasing to survive. And that can be really frustrating. I know for you, Jason, as being a rebel, it's like, I think you're conflicted sometimes where you may have found and others too, not just you, of course, but like, like, I don't want to please anyone. You know, I want to please myself. Like, when do I get to please myself? And I think that's why a lot of people are drawn to that coming back around to that idea, Michelle. It's like a lot of people are just fed up with trying to please others. Or a lot of people are fed up with trying to pretend that to be something that they're not or to, to always feel like they have to be polished, which is part of it as well. It's like polished to me is this idea of presenting yourself differently than what you are at your core. But then at the same time, if we call ourselves unpolished, then that's a bit of a judgment too. So I think that's an important thing to address. It's like, what if it's more neutral? where I think it's more about society's perception of what it means to look polished. But what if we're polished just as we are? What if like our, as you were saying, Michelle, like, like as kids, how we already know so much information, and then we unlearn it and we have to relearn it and we keep going back and back to it. Like as kids, we're often so loved just as we are. And then somehow throughout life, we start feeling like, oh, I have to be more than that. I have to present myself in a certain way because I, I can't just, you know, as kids, we don't wear makeup. Most of us, <laughs> we, we usually are not really doing our hair. Like it's like our parents comb our hair, our caretakers comb our hair, maybe put on some clothes. Some caretakers want us to wear certain clothes to look cute and all of that. But like, it's pretty basic. <laughs> and yet as adults, it starts to become so complicated. And then it's like we're layering on all of these things that we perceive as being polished. And I would imagine that this phrase of being unapologetic about just who you are at your core really resonates with people who are just exhausted. That's how I feel, at least. Like it's exhausting to try to be what I think society wants me to be. And recognizing that I don't need to be what other people want me to be to survive. Not anymore, at least. As kids, perhaps, you know, when we talk about parents, some of us feel like if we don't please our parents, if we don't do what our parents say, if we don't act how our parents want us to act, then we won't, then we'll be rejected by them. And either we we won't survive or we won't get our needs met or our desires met. So a lot of us start to put like morph ourselves and become chameleons to just get by. And then that shows up in our relationships, that shows up in our work environments. And at the core, it's like a lot of my burnout, I think, comes back to that. And Jason, I know that sometimes you feel the rage from that as well. So it's been amazing just exploring this from so many angles with you, Michelle, and dive in just kind of chipping away at what, what it means to truly be unapologetic about who you are and why that's important. 
Yeah, I think you hit it on on the head with being exhausted. <laughs> so many of us are so tired of showing up in a place that is not truth. And I go back to truth because when we when I think of unpolished, for me that means unfinished. And I'm not finished yet. So I will always be unpolished because I'll never be finished. And I am unapologetic about being an unfinished human being. And it was liberating. And I think that's where a lot of my energy comes from, too, because I'm not exhausted anymore, because I'm not trying to explain, apologize uh, for who I am. I am me and I am me. And you can take it or leave it. And I'm okay with that. I'm not for everybody. And that is okay, because I know that there are people that are assigned to my life and people that I'm assigned to their life. And as you continue to walk and as I continue to walk, I find these amazing humans that 10 years ago I would never have been able to engage with or interact with because I wasn't who I needed to be. I was still apologizing for who I was. I was still people pleasing. I was still hiding under layers the truth of who I am. And as I've begun taking off those layers and those clothes and those sweaters, it's summertime now. I need to be in a short sleeve shirt. (laughs) You know, I used to wear sweatshirts in the summer because I was, I was ashamed of who I was. And now that I am unapologetic, that I'm unfinished and that's okay. And I am who I am exactly in the process of where I am. Life is a joy and life is beautiful. And I've been able to meet amazing humans such as yourself and Jason and contribute to an amazing podcast such as this and and have conversations that help me grow and become who I am eventually going to be before I leave the earth. So it's just been incredible. I have loved my time on this show. I don't know how how much longer we have, but I'm just, I'm so honored to know both of you. This conversation filled me with such joy. I am just so grateful, so grateful for my time with you. And I, I know the connection is not over. I'm just in such gratitude right now for the conversation and for everything that was said and unsaid as well. Well, Michelle, I just I want to thank you also for being an example of someone who has survived and been through a lot and continues to do the deep, necessary work on herself, but to do it with joyfulness. Like you, you radiate an energy of joyfulness and love. And I think that's such a wonderful example for me and also the listener or the watchers where we can be in the gauntlet of life, so to speak. We can be in the tests that life has given us. But we can also carry a semblance of love and joyfulness while we do it. And I just want to thank you for carrying that energy and being real and being truthful and being yourself because it's made an impact on me over the course of the last hour. And I know that it's resonated with a lot of our listeners too. So I just want to acknowledge you and thank you for being a source of authenticity and truth, joy and love and being that because it's palpable and we can feel it. And for you, dear listener, if you want to get more of Michelle and that wonderful, beautiful energy that she radiates in this world, we will have links to her podcast, her website, everything that you can find her on. You want to find her on Clubhouse? We got you. We're going to put all of these great links to Michelle Perry in the podcast show notes, which you can find at wellevator.com. That's our website, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Click on the podcast section. It will take you to the entire transcript for this episode with Michelle and have all of the great links where you can find her, stalk her, listen to her, love her up, glean all that beautiful wisdom she has to share. 
And with that, thanks for getting uncomfortable with us, Michelle. It's It's been just an absolute joy to have you here. And my heart feels a little bit lighter, honestly, after having this conversation with you. So thank you so much for being here. And thanks for sharing this with both of us and all of our listeners. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 